Well, this was a quite a uh, scripture reading and quite a week. Quite a week. Uh, you know, I, um, I just want to say in a broad way that um, the Church of Jesus Christ has flourished under every kind of political cultural arrangement. It's amazing uh, the resilience of the Church to be the Church of Jesus Christ facing whatever that we face. And uh, I think you know, because especially Protestants, we've inherited so much of the Christendom model where we almost expect uh, the kind of church-state collaboration that we long for and that these, you know, this or that person will help us to um, achieve various outcomes. We forget the, uh, the deeper DNA of the church is always that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord over all the nations. And he is bringing history to its appointed end of which he is in complete control. Uh, sometimes he has given the people of God uh, Nebuchadnezzar when we needed chastisement. And sometimes he's given us Cyrus when we needed deliverance. And we just have to uh, receive it. Um, as I've said before here, you know, it was Gandalf who said to Frodo, uh, you cannot choose the time you live in. You can only choose to do what you can with the time you've been given. So we have to uh, be Christians in the midst of uh, a lot of cultural instability in these days. Our country is deeply divided. Uh, our nation is, um, is at a point of, of tremendous fracturing. And the greatest hope for that kind of fracturing instability is the church to be the church. And if we are the church and we don't get sucked into all of the angst of this, we'll find ourselves with a, a beacon of hope to a fractured world. And remind people in our own living witness that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. That's where we're headed. So uh, keep your chin up. You know, also take time to um, mingle a bit with our international students, uh, some of whom have, con have, have never known anything but political situations, extremely uh, difficult and stressful for the church. Uh, certainly the church around the world totally understands the challenges that we face, and uh, the church will, um, will, will prevail because Christ is the Lord of it. Speaking of instability, uh, this text comes at a time of really interesting uh, challenge to the people of God. This is the time, uh, 3,500 years ago, when the, when, the, when the people of God are entering into the promised land. And they have all the expectations of what is this going to be like and the challenge they're facing. They had many foes that were opposing them. Uh, so in the, where our text lands, they have already uh, gone and uh, invaded the Amorites and they have uh, taken King Sihon. They have invaded uh, the land of Bashan and taken King Og. And now they're about to take Moab and we introduce King Balak here. Now if you ever, ever doubted that God has a sense of humor... This text will finally silence that debate. This shows a tremendous humor on the side of God. The interplay between the super prophet who has all the insights, who's paid money to come and pronounce his prophecies, is made a fool of by a donkey uh, who is, epitomizes stupidity and slowness and everything in the ancient world. Um, along with this amazing king, Balak. This is funny, people. <laughs> this is God showing his sense of humor. 
And so uh, it's so wonderful to have this text before us, uh, before us today. Now, when you read this passage, uh, what's interesting is how the first impression can be one way, and a deeper reading realizes, oh my goodness, something deeper is going on here. Because most people who first read Numbers 22 to 25, when they read this passage, they go away with a taste in their mouth, at least, that Balaam is a good guy. After all, here's a person who, after repeated um, financial inducements to come and put a curse on Israel, he persistently pronounces a blessing on Israel. Isn't he one of the good guys? He actually says, point blank, you know, I am only going to do, uh, you know, the Lord refused, let me go with you. Um, if you were to give me your whole palace filled with gold and silver, I would never do more or less or more than what the Lord commanded. Sounds pretty good to me. So in kind of a first reading, uh, you realize, wow, okay, this man seems to be a pretty good guy. But then you can read what the, what the Scripture says about him. Scripture interprets Scripture. And uh, you, he's referred to six times in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament. Let's just take a minute to reflect on the New Testament uh, commentary on Balaam. One place, for example, is 2 Peter 2.15. In that passage, in fact, I'll just read it to you. He's trying, he's discussing like the dangers of art, like, you know, all the false teaching of the church. And so here he is trying to, uh, trying to really uh, bring out a condemnation on the false teachers that are corrupting the church. And who does he draw upon as the archetype of all false teachers? Balaam. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. This man are springs without water, mist driven by the storm, blackest, far, uh, blackest darkness reserved for them, on and on and on and on it goes. This is, this is not a light passage. This is like a really strong condemnation of Balaam. I mean, a spring without water, deception. You expect something, you get something else. Um, you look at a passage like, uh, for example, as well, uh, Revelation 2.14, where he's trying to advocate the dangers of Christians who compromise with the world in the name of Christian liberty. Sound familiar? And who does he give as the archetype of that? Balaam. Jude only has, you know, one chapter. Jude verse 11 pronounces woe of judgment on those who are godless. And this is what he says to them. Woe unto them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed into profit, into Balaam's error. So when you read the New Testament, you're like, wow. This guy receives like three lashes from the New Testament. He's the archetype of all false teachers. He's the archetype of those who, under the guise of Christian liberty, advocate compromise with the world. He's the archetype of the so-called error of Balaam, those who are godless. What is the error of Balaam? So let's go to Numbers 22 and see if we can determine what exactly is the error of Balaam. Why does he receive such profound, persistent condemnation from the witness of the New Testament? And this is one of the places where we can do, like Richard Hayes, we do a little reading backwards, okay? We, we figure out, okay, why does this happen in the New Testament? Let's go back and read these passages again in light of the New Testament uh, strong condemnation. 
Well, the first thing I want to say, there's actually three levels of deception, and amazingly, two of the three are picked up on by the New Testament. The first is the compromising effect of deception. Balaam is a man who actually is a compromiser, but you don't really notice it at first. So when the first thing comes, they come to him uh, in verse 12, and they ask him to come and put a curse on Israel, and we will pay you handsomely to do this. This is a transaction in the ancient world. We need a prophet, go buy one, right? So they need to come buy the prophet to come and pronounce a curse on them. So he uh, goes and um, he prays about it. And um, the Lord says to him, verse 12, do not go with them. Now, what part of that is hard to understand? <laughs> do not go with them. It seems pretty straightforward. So Balaam next morning says to Balak's princes, go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Now that's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Think about it. It's kind of like, I guess a comparison would be like a 14-year-old girl whose parents say to her, sweetheart, we love you, and I know this young man has invited you out to a date. I know he's Prince Charming. Uh, but we don't believe you're old enough to date, and we think you should wait till you're 16. So the 14-year-old young lady goes to her boyfriend or goes to this young masker out, and she does not say this. I have counseled my parents, and they have shown me the wisdom of their reflection on childhood and maturity, and my, my, my spirit bears witness with their spirit that I am not going to go out on a date with you until I'm 16 years old. Instead, she says, my parents will not let me go with you. There's a big difference, right? There's a huge difference. There's a big difference between inner conviction and outer compulsion. And this actually comes to the very heart of the Wesleyan message, actually, though it's actually the Christian message, but Wesley put a highlighter on it, and that is this. It's not simply, it's not enough for Christians just to do the right thing. We hear it all the time, you know, do the right thing, do this, do the right thing. It's important that you do the right thing for the right reason. It's important that you actually have your heart redirected. Balaam's heart is not in this refusal. He wants the divination fee. He wants the money. He wants to be paid. He understands this whole transaction. He, so he says, the Lord will not let me go with you. He is driven by an outward compulsion, not an inner conviction. This is the root of tremendous problems in the church today. Because we are not driven by that inner convictions of God and his spirit in our lives. So they obviously, I mean, you know this from the text itself, because they realize, aha, there's a crack here. There's a crack. You leave a crack, Satan will put his, you know, finger into it, his spike into that, and he'll pry you open. So he goes back and he sends more princes, more distinguished, more money, and he comes and please, uh, you know, don't let anything keep you. Um, this is remarkable. This is a very st powerful statement. They're going to give him even more riches, and they're going to go and entice him to come again. So what did Balaam say? Balaam starts out, again, the first verse is very powerful. This man operates at the level of deception. So we have first the compromise effect of deception. Here we have the rationalizing effect of deception. 
This guy is a rationalizer. So he says to uh, Balak's princes, even if you gave your master's entire palace filled with silver and gold, I will not go with you. Sounds pretty good, but the verse goes on. But stay here tonight and I will see what else the Lord will tell me. This is a classic, classic church move today. We know what God's word says, but let's form a commission and study it and see what else God might say to us. Okay, that's a little strong, all right, but it's kind of, it's kind of there. I mean, this is a, con a very common thing, you know. If you really don't like God's word, have a blue ribbon study commission. That's how we do these things today. So essentially, Balaam sets up a commission. He's like, okay, I want to think about this a little bit. I'll see what else. It's kind of like, you know, um, you know, like Regis Philbin, you know, uh, he wants to be a millionaire. He says to the Lord, the Lord says, do not go with them. The Lord says, Balaam says, is that your final answer? <laughs> Maybe there's another answer. Let's think about this some more. So we know that because when he comes back and, uh, and the Lord does say, okay, go. Okay, go with him. And when you read this, it's like, okay, wait a minute, let's stop. In this verse, God says very plainly, do not go with them. Now, after this kind of second consultation, is this your final answer? Okay, go with him. Go with him. Is God schizophrenic? Does God's word vacillate? Why, why do we have this go, don't go, don't go, go? Why, what about all that? Well, this man is a person that is wanting to hear what God, wanting to hear what he wants to hear. In fact, the Bible says point blank in the text, it says after he goes, it says, okay, he says, okay, go with them. Verse 22, but God was very angry when he went. Why is God angry when he went? Because this man's determined, he's persistently wanting to do what he wants to do. But as we did in the last part of this series, you know, God is the great plotter, right? God is the, pl the ultimate plotter and schemer. God's going to out-scheme him, his plotting. And this is what's happening uh, in this passage. You know, they, they say that, uh, you know, when Constantine's armies were baptized at the birth of this project called Christendom that we're still trying to get free from, they say when he baptized them, they... they um, they didn't baptize their arms. They left their hand out so they could still hold the sword and kill people. Is that true? Did that actually happen? Is that just mythology, Ben? There you have it. <laughs> I've always heard that. I never knew it was true. But, you know, it's the whole thing. Okay, we're going to try to play this both ways. We want to be baptized, but let's keep our, our sword hand free. All right? The Wesleyan message is about being totally baptized. I know that that sounds like a contradiction for our traditional baptism. I'm talking about spiritually baptized, immersed in the spirit. Nothing stuck out. When Martin Luther was challenged 495 years ago, 1521, at that wonderful place, I love the name of it, the Diet of Worms. Don't you love it? I mean, you know, isn't it great in our history we have these wonderful moments where it's like Martin Luther stands before the Diet of Worms? I mean, that's great. That's like, doesn't God have a sense of humor? I mean, God, this could happen other places, but, you know, the diet was a place of meeting. It was in the town of Worms, and comes out the Diet of Worms. I love it. So here's Martin Luther, standing before the Diet of Worms, and they ask him, will you recant? 
Will you, will you uh, recant of all your writings? Now, my Lutheran scholars, friends, tell me that Luther did not actually say the words that we love to quote, here I stand, I can do no other. Well, okay, they penciled it in later maybe, but if you actually read what he said, and he may have said that, by the way, this, this the earliest account of it doesn't actually have those words, but the, it doesn't matter because what he actually says is even better. What he says is, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. If you can, he says, councils have erred. I mean, he didn't say commissions, but councils have erred. Popes have erred. Everybody, he's, the whole, they've contradicted each other, he says. Unless you can show me by the word of God that what I've advocated is wrong, I will not recant. And effectively, that's him saying, here I stand to no other. And he did end, God help me. God help me. What a, what a wonderful witness that next year will start with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but the witness of Martin Luther, who in part created this great movement out of being willing to stand firm against so many challenges, in this case, even within the church, not simply outside the church. We have both these challenges. Psalm 106, verse 15, has this interesting statement. God gave them what they asked for, but sent a leanness into their soul. See, sometimes God says, okay, you want to go with them, go with them. God's that way. He, he has other, another, other pathways to the kingdom. He, can, he doesn't need me. God does not need me to usher in the kingdom of God, or even the Asbury kingdom. <laughs> I'm dispensable just like that. Because God, this is God's work. None of us are, are, are dispensable or indispensable. And so sometimes God gives us over to the things that we long for. The, 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 Psalm, the Psalm 37 where it talks about, uh, or 32, where it says that uh, in verse 4, God will give you the desires of your heart. Now we take that as one of the great promise verses of the Bible. Really? Maybe. Maybe not. That's what your desires are. God gives you over to the desires of your heart. Or God gives you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? You know, I think about these, uh, these promise boxes that they sell in Christian bookstores. I'm not against those kind of things. Like in the morning, you know, you get up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee, and you pluck out a verse. Okay, it seems a little lame to me, but... People find this helpful. You know, and I had parishioners who did this by the scad. So, you know, who am I to stand against hundreds of parishioners with a Bible verse in their hand? But I just wish they would actually make those things like a real Bible promise box that really had God. Like, you know, they, they open up the same stone, open up. God will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, what a great way to start today. Get a cup of coffee, off you go. But what if you had one that opened up, you know, and you open it and it says, your throat is an open grave. <laughs> that is not going to appear in the promise box. Can you imagine that? Pick it out. Okay, you know, praise the Lord. We've got a great morning. Pluck it out. God will judge you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> so, just some examples. But the point is, is that we have our own way of kind of sifting through the Bible, don't we? we? We want to receive what we want to receive. 
And the moment we get any kind of rough waters where God starts saying, no, 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 you know, you, you have to repent and turn the right way. This is the way, walk you in that. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. So this is a com common problem in the church. We selectively decide what we want to hear, and we follow that. Balaam is teaching us these things, the compromise effect of deception, the rationalizing effect of deception. We can rationalize almost anything. I even had a couple who conveyed to me in an early pastoral ministry. They were unmarried. They wanted to sleep together. And they got, came together in their apartment, and they prayed this prayer, Lord, if no one comes to our door in the next 10 minutes, knocks on the door, then we will take this as a sign that it's okay. Now that is the lamest prayer ever prayed. It has nothing to do with godliness. This is about people wanting what they want to receive. Finally, the blinding effect of deception. Now here you have, the, the, uh, this is the, the funny part of the whole thing, that where the donkey becomes the super prophet, and the super prophet is seen as the stupid donkey. They, it goes out, and he is on his way, and the Lord stands in the road. This is the angel of the Lord. Okay, this is like a full, I mean, a full glorious angel, you know, with the, the, the silver suit, the golden sash, maybe even the wings, I don't know, whatever. The halo, everything, the drawn sword. This is the full angel of the Lord and all of his glory stand on the road to oppose Balaam. You are not to go and curse these people. This is an errand of foolishness. Well, the donkey instantly sees the angel of the Lord. Balaam doesn't. He's blind to it. See the blinding effect of deception. He's blind to it. So Balaam um, starts beating the donkey. The donkey says, saw the angel of the Lord stand in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. Turns off the road. Gets beaten, beaten, beaten. So then the angel of the Lord goes to a narrow path in two vineyards, walls on both sides. Here's the, the donkey. You're moving aside. Uh, we, we, this is horrible. I'm not going to come. I'm not going to cross the path of that drawn angel with a drawn sword. His, his leg's getting crushed against the canyon wall. He's beating the donkey more. Well, finally, the angel of the Lord stands in this very narrow place, and they cannot go left or the right. He beats the donkey again, and the donkey speaks to him and said, why have you doing, why are you doing this to me? Okay, this is the Lord projecting his own prophetic act of, you know, condemnation through the mouth of a donkey. Now that's funny. <laughs> so the donkey rebukes the prophet. All right, three times you've beaten the donkey. Three times I've stood in the path to oppose you. So the, so the angel of the Lord appears to Balaam and confronts him with his foolishness. And this is what Balaam says, I have sinned. I did not realize you're standing there in the road to oppose me. Now, look, don't you love this line here? Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. What? <laughs> if you are displeased, what? Let me just give you a little hint here. If you are on your way back to your apartment or back to your, you know, wherever you're going to live, and you, an angel of the Lord appears in your path with a drawn sword to oppose you, you don't need to wonder if he's displeased with you. <laughs> Turn around. Go the other direction. If you're displeased with me, 
You see, this whole thing is about Balaam, on the one hand, kind of level one, which is why we missed this point. Level one, he speaks in very, very uh, spiritual, religious language, right? He understands that. He knows how to talk, you know, the evangelical talk. We have all the phrases that we say at the right moments, and we know how to do that better than anybody. And so when you first read the passage, here's the guy, you know, I will only do what the Lord commands me. If you give me all your palace of silver and gold, I will, not, I will not do anything but what the Lord commands. All these great statements, but underneath it all, he's saying things like, well, let me see what else the Lord says. If you're displeased with me, all that. And the New Testament picked up on that. They saw right through it. And the New Testament uniformly condemns him as the archetype of false teachers, of the archetype of those who compromise with the world in the name of Christian liberty and those who uh, are in league with the godless. It's an amazing condemnation of a man that we find in the Old Testament. And this is one of the great things of the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not often come with like footnote commentaries. It actually it unfolds what happens. And it invites you into the whole, you know, wonderful drama. And you have to discern and understand what is actually happening in these passages. And the New Testament, of course, gives us the wonderful truth of that. But one of the great things about this is we have to understand that we are the people of God framed by his divine revelation. When I was uh, at Tocqueville Falls College, right, we have a student here today from Tocqueville Falls College, that, uh, a graduate of there. When I taught there years and years ago, um, they, Tocqueville Falls College, very conservative college, and they were very um, concerned uh, when people pointed out to them books in the library that had various teachings that were not right. And of course, as you know, in any you know, theological library, there's all kinds of books that are arguing things, teaching things, or saying things that we just absolutely don't agree with because uh, they're not a biblical perspective, but you have to expose yourself to this, you have to read this, understand this, to be a faithful Christian in the world today. So we understand that, but this, this was very troubling. So some of the uh, trustees got wind of this, that there were books in the library that espoused very liberal views. So they decided to uh, create a little sticker inside every book. It goes like this. The views of this book do not uh, necessarily reflect the views of the trustees of Dakota Falls College. And so they uh, then were asked by the library staff, the dutiful library staff, said, okay, which books do we put them in? You know, because how do you know? If you hit, which are all the liberal books? We put the then, then everybody would know, well, if it has the sticker, it means that that's one of the books they don't approve, right? So they, they were trying to figure out which books get this sticker. So this caused some deliberation, and they finally came back and said, okay, that's a good point. Let's put it in all the books. So every book has the same sticker. The views of this book do not necessarily reflect the views of Dakota Falls College of Trustees. So they did this, and they would spend, you know, this library staff spent weeks you know, getting these things printed off and laminated and put inside the books. Well, the problem with any theological library, this is the, they never thought about this, that every library is filled with a lot of Bibles. And it was a bit disconcerting to open up the cover of a Bible and have it written in the front of it, a little sticker, the views of this book do not necessarily reflect 
the views of the trustees of Cofalls College. Administrators can be crazy, can't they? But you know, I think that in some ways it's a reminder to us that occasionally we might look in the mirror and see that sticker on ourselves. Occasionally, if you think about it, and I, I see this all to my own life, where I, I, when I really allow God's word to really speak to me, it, it has this way of searing through so many things that, you know, it just need the searing light of the, of the word of God. To views this book doesn't necessarily reflect the way that I live and think and move into the world. And the whole point of this is to bring our lives in alignment with God's revelation, God's word. We have to really be smart in the days ahead. We have to be discerning. We have to be men and women of conviction, not just outward compulsion. People driven by a sense of willing to, to understand the challenge we face and how many things, how many ways in which the enemy's work gets done under the guise of religious language. I mean, it was actually to close Martin Luther, who once said famously, wherever God builds a church, there the devil builds a chapel. That's what this message reminds us of. May the Lord help us to live according to his word in all that we do. Thanks be to God. Amen.